I want to remind us of our mission. Our mission, we're about helping people find and follow Jesus. We're going to continue in our series through the Ten Commandments. We, this is number eight. We've been in this series for eight months now. That brings us to the Eighth Commandment. We've been calling this series, Thou Shalt, the Ten Commandments. So if you brought a Bible with you, open to the book of Exodus, chapter 20. We're going to look at verse 15 together, a sermon I'm calling, No Stealing. No Stealing. So, you know, I heard a story about a man, and this man's name was Robert Courtney. Uh, he owned a very profitable uh, pharmacy in the, in the Midwest portion of our, of our country. Um, what turns out, though, is that Roberts Courtney, his family, they were living large. They, they were doing real well. They lived in a multi-million dollar home in the upper part of very upscale class in Kansas, outside of Kansas City. Uh, the family also had a vacation home in Colorado. They would take week-long ski trips uh, there all the time. Uh, they also took month-long annual vacations to the Caribbean. Uh, the family, the children, all drove the nicest cars. His wife had the, the best clothes. By anyone's account, this family was filthy rich. That all changed. That all changed in uh, early 2002 when it was discovered that Robert Courtney had amassed his wealth by unethical and illegal business practices. Turns out he was diluting a lot of the drugs they were selling through those pharmacies, one of which was a cancer drug called Kimzar. At his court hearing, a daughter of a deceased cancer victim looked Robert Courtney in the eyes and called him a monster in a white lab coat. He was sentenced to 30 years in federal prison in 2002 and had to repay millions in, in dollars in damages. Now, as what he did was absolutely horrific, but maybe the worst is still to come. Robert Courtney called himself a Christian. One of the worst aspects of his crime, he called himself a follower of Jesus Christ. And in, to take even worse, he served on the, the board of deacons for his church. He taught Sunday school every, to little kids every single Sunday. He gave money to the church and supported the pastor when the pastor fell on hard times. And then he was a PK, son of a preacher. He's a preacher's kid. Robert Courtney led one of the greatest scams in the late 20th and early 21st century. And the decisions that he chose to make greatly hurt the gospel. With that, let's read what God says about this. Exodus 20, verse 15. God says, you shall not steal. Let me ask you this question. Have you ever been stolen from? How'd that make you feel? Like a, like a pit in your stomach, right? You feel like you've been wrong, you've been violated. The first time I can think of that I remember being stolen from, I was, I think I was in my early 20s, and I was uh, coaching wrestling. I drove my Jeep, I was driving a Jeep there, to the opposing school. We had the duel, came back out, and someone had slashed open my window, reached in there, broke my radio out of my, out of my Jeep. One of the things that absolutely shocked me when our family moved here to Wyoming is at Blair's, y'all will drive up into the, the parking lot and leave your cars running as you go inside to get some milk. Let me tell you, nobody does that in California because you go in for milk, come back, your car is gone. <laughs> it will be found later that day in the foothills lit on fire because it was used in, the, in a crime, but that's what's going to happen if you leave your car running. There is so much that goes into keeping us from getting ripped off anymore because the consequences are simply huge. 
People have had their life savings stolen from right out from underneath them, and they never knew anything was going on. People have lost homes that they've been paying on for 30-plus years. Did you know when God made the earth, it wasn't supposed to be like that? Because God looked at the earth, and he said it was good, and it was without sin. That's how God made everything. And all this stealing and all the countermeasures that go in to keep people from ripping us off, that's all a result of the fall. Think about this. This is just, this blows my mind. That with all that we're talking about here, people will still look you dead in the eye and say, you know what? People are basically good. Now, yeah, CP Shake, no, we're not. <laughs> we're not good. We are basically evil at heart. We're anything but good. We are sinners with our self interest at heart. And that is what causes people to steal. Now, I've asked you, have you ever been stolen from? But how about this one? Have you ever stolen? Don't answer that one. No hands. <laughs> we, we tend to have a real sense of justice when we're the ones being uh, stolen from, but we conveniently overlook when we're the ones that are stealing. So who have you stolen from? What have you stolen? Here's the definition of stealing. Stealing is the taking of something that does not belong to you without permission or right, especially in secret or by force. Here, here's what I'm trying to get across. If it's not yours and you take it, then you're a thief. And I'll say it like this. If it's theirs and not yours, and they take what's yours, then they're a thief. But here, what does God say about this? He says, don't do it. <laughs> don't steal. That's what he says in context of the eighth, command, eighth commandment. He says, don't steal. You know, to all the very conservative individuals, believe me, I'm a pastor that knows my audience, I think you're going to like this message. <laughs> because largely what our government does today, it's stealing and God says it's wrong, okay? God gave this commandment, this eighth commandment, and it's real simple to understand, okay? There's no footnotes. There's not a lot of subplots. There's not a lot of lawyer talk that goes along with this one. It's really easy. Don't steal. That means if it's not yours, then leave it alone, and if you take it, then you're guilty of breaking the eighth commandment. Did you know that the Bible supports the idea of the private ownership of property? It does. But then there's some people that will say it doesn't. What, there's some people that say, well, they've read the Bible. And tell you the truth, I think they're breaking the ninth commandment. We'll, we'll talk about that next week. But they say they've read the Bible, and they say what the Bible says, that we should all just put all of our assets into one big giant pile. And then what we should do is just we should just have common assets. And then wh whoever needs can come and take, and that way everybody will have what they need. But those people that think like this, they fail to understand the sinfulness of human beings. Okay? The Bible says if it belongs to them and not you, and you take it, then you're stealing. So the Bible teaches that the, the idea of private ownership of property. And here's how it all begins. That everything belongs to God. That he's the owner of everything, and he distributes to you what he's going to give to you. And he's going to give to somebody else what he wants to give to somebody else. And if he gives something to somebody else, then it's theirs. And it's not yours. And you can't take it. In order for God to say that, he assumes the right for the private ownership of property. And for the individual to have the rights to that, those items. And here's the next thing that God wants you to know with what he's given to you. Okay, He wants you to take what he's given to you... And use that to love your neighbor. 
That's what God wants you to do. Since God loves you, he wants you to love your neighbor. And we demonstrate that first by not stealing from others. And then second, by giving to them what's rightfully yours. But what happens is often people become selfish. And we only think of ourselves. But God says, you know what? I love you. And I love them. And I want you to show my love for them with the things that I've given to you. So that's what we do. Well, first we show our love to our neighbor by not stealing from them. And then if they need anything, and you have it, we share with them. So I want you to know that you do have the right not to be stolen from. If you ask the average person, hey, do you have the right to not to be stolen from? The average person will say, yes, of course. I, I, I absolutely have the right not to be stolen from. But then often that same person that says that will say, but, but you know, we have the right to take from those that have to give to those who have not because after all, they have a lot and they have little. So we should go ahead and do that. No, that's stealing. You see, this is what we should say. We say, yes, I have the right not to be stolen from and I have the responsibility not to steal from others. What starts to undermine an entire culture is when there's a culture of people that are far more concerned with their rights than they are concerned with their responsibilities. Okay? This is what we're trying to get across, that God wants you to not take, but he wants you to give. So there are several ways that, that we steal. You know, I, I often, you've heard the old saying that says, if you point your finger at somebody, you need to pay attention because there's three fingers point, pointing back at you. Well, that's what we're going to do here. We're going we're gonna to point the fingers back at ourselves. This is an exhausted list of things, of ways, excuse me, that you can steal. But how about this? How about some of the easy ones like burglary or larceny or shoplifting or extortion? Those are ways that we can steal. How about this? Underpaying your taxes. How about misappropriating company funds? How about killing time at work? Well, that's a huge one. We're going to look at that here in a minute. How about not paying your employees? Taking supplies at work? Identity theft. The, the, the list goes on and on. That last one, identity theft, you know, with the, 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 the invention of technology and the internet, identity theft is huge anymore because it's opening a whole new avenue of ways that we can steal from people. And God says that you should not steal from people. And the truth is, we steal all the time. So this is what I want to do now. I want to talk about some ways that maybe we break the Eighth Commandment. You know, how this applies to our lives. Let's start with the employers. You know, Jesus had a half-brother by the name of James. James had a lot to say about this. He was talking to employers. He says this in James chapter 5, verse 4. He says, Behold... The wages of the laborer who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have lived on the earth in luxury, in self-indulgence, and you have fattened your hearts in the day of slaughter. Here's what James is saying. He's saying if you're an employer and you have an employee and your employer does their job, then you need to pay him. Now, what James is not talking about is people who didn't do their job. Because very often people will say, oh, man, my boss, he's such a jerk. I, I, he just, he's not paying me my, my, my wages. Well, the question is, well, did you do your job? If the answer is no, then you shouldn't be paid because then you're stealing. But if you do your job, then you should expect to get paid. Because the person who's not paying you, they're not only sin against you, 
they're also sinning against God. So are you a good employer? If you fail to pay your employees, especially, think about the Christians. The Christians' employers that, that call themselves followers of Christ and then they don't pay their employees, that hurts the gospel. Because here's the truth, your employees know where you go to church. And they're talking about you on the sides. They're saying, yeah, my, my boss says he's a Christian or she's a Christian, but the truth is they're a hypocrite. How about the other side of the coin? How about the employees? The Bible has a lot to say to the employees too. Read in Titus chapter 2, verse 9. It says, bond servants are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. They are to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, that's the stealing thing right there, not pilfering, but showing all good faith so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of, the, of God our Savior. The word translated as, as bondservant is doulos in the Greek. It, it means servant. Here, here's the new Pastor John translation of that verse. Employees do everything that's well-pleasing. Not argumentative, but not stealing, but being a great employee that shows off what a great Savior you have. Just about every employer can tell you what a serious problem employee theft is, especially if that business have any, has anything to do with sales. Uh, most human resource departments have a full-time job when it comes to, to this, this issue. The New York Times, they uh, cited a study here recently that, that found that dishonest employees average $1,890 per employee theft. Now compare that to the average shoplifter that, that lifts an average of $438 per offense. According to statistics, uh, employee theft accounts for 42% of U.S. store inventory loss each year, and that leads to 33% of U.S. bankruptcies. In addition to stealing items, though, employees can be guilty of stealing time. If you're paid by the hour and you're getting paid for that entire hour, and yet you don't work that entire hour, then you are guilty of stealing. Um, when I was much younger, I was a little bitty guy, I went to work for my dad, and I remember very vividly, I remember these the plasters, they're, they're, they're plastering a wall with one hand, and they're smoking with the other. And I remember my dad saying, hey, I pay for two hands. If you, if you want to smoke, that's fine, but I'm pay you half as much, but otherwise, I get two hands, and you save the smokes for your, for your smoke break. You know, we don't like to be stolen from, but a lot of the time, sadly, we don't mind stealing. And many of us don't think of as time as stealing. It's just we're just wasting time. No, but ask the employer that is in paying the employee hourly if that's a big deal. And they're going to tell you, yes, it's a huge deal. I had a very good friend of mine. He's a big wig at a major grocery store. And I remember years ago um, him telling me what an issue this is. And so the store has a policy that you can't work and have your cell phone in your hands. And so this uh, store, everybody has to wear an apron. They've got little pockets. And I remember I'm shopping. I'm pushing my cart. And I'm looking at the high school age employees. And they all, they've all got their hand in their pocket. And they're texting without looking. Remember back when you had to push the seven so many times to make an S or a T? Well, they're texting without even looking. I mean, it's kind of amazing that you can do that. But... Do you think that's gotten better or worse since the invention of smartphones and social media? I think it's huge. And then those same people, they'll say, well, it's no big deal. Well, everybody's doing it. Hey, it's a big company. They, they can afford the loss. Well, God says it's wrong. 
That's why it's wrong, because God says it's wrong. Now, I want to talk to all the Christians in the room. If, if you're a non-Christian, you can just tune out for the next couple of minutes. I'll get to you in, at the end of this message. But th- this verse I want to share to you, it's, it's from the book of Malachi. Read in Malachi chapter 3, verse 8. God, he's speaking through a prophet named Malachi. God says, will man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. But I, I say, but, but you say, how have we robbed you? In your tithes and contributions. You are cursed with a curse for you are robbing me. I remember the day we went through that text. We had a first time visitor at church. I'm like, no, the day I'm talking about money, that's the day they show up. And I had to go, I said, I promise I don't talk about money every week. It's only when the text that we're covering specifically addresses that, that topic. But this is what I want you to know. God is speaking to believers in that text. So if you're not a Christian, that text does not apply to you. But if you call yourself a Christian, then you need to pay attention. Here's what God is saying through the prophet Malachi. God is saying, you're robbing me. And we think, how in the world can I rob God? Well, God answers that question. He says, in your tithes and contributions. Maybe instead of contributions, we might use the word offering. There's two different givings here that are going on. Okay, This isn't the same giving here. Tithes means what you think it means. It means 10%. And the offerings were on top of that. Okay, two different givings here. Um, and also, so you know, this is off the gross, not the net. The first fruits are called the first fruits for a reason because they're the first fruits and not the second fruits. You know, it's not like we give God the second fruits after the government has t- taken their share. God's supposed to get his right off the top. But think about this in the Old Testament, it's tithes, 10%. And then the offerings on top of that. Most theologians suggest that the offering was somewhere between 14 to 17%. That means in the Old Testament, the Old Testament, they get the law and 14, or excuse me, 24 to 27% off the gross income. And Christians get offended when the pastor starts talking about a tithe. I mean, come on. This is like the greatest deal. We get the New Testament, we get grace in 10%. That's the best deal ever. So, so often Christians, I mean, I can see it in their faces where they're going, don't, don't talk about money. Talk about anything other than money, Pastor John. Hey, let's go back last week and let's talk about adultery, but please don't talk about money. You know, this happens because so often we are breaking the first and second commandment. People that get offended by those messages, really, they've got a whole new God. And that whole new God looks a whole lot like Benjamin Franklin. It's their money. Stealing is what happens when we want more of that God. We want more of our false God, the, the, the God of money. And so what we do is we steal so we can accrue of, as much of that God as we possibly can. Read what the Bible says about this in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 10. The Word of God says, For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. It is through this craving that some have wandered from the faith and have pierced themselves with many pains. The problem's not money. Money's just a tangible item. That's all it is. You see, it's the love of money that there's the real problem with. This is why Jesus says, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Because where your money goes, that ultimately reveals where your heart is. The reason why people get upset when a preacher talks about money is because that preacher is dissing their God. A preacher is throwing shade at the God of their heart. 
And so what Jesus says is you can't worship both God and money. It's either or. Now, we can't worship God with our money, but you can't worship both. And now, but I, I understand part of the pain for us as Christians is that we're supposed to give to God first, but let's be honest, our government has set up shop upstream from God, so really our government takes a cut before we ever get our hands on our wallets so we can give to God what we'd like to give to God. I remember the first time I got a paycheck. I, I was working for my dad. I was making minimum wage, which way back then was $3.14 an hour. And I worked 40 hours. And I got that paycheck, three digits. That's right, it was over $100. I'm like, I'm rich. But then I start reading the fine print. I'm like, who's this FICA guy? <laughs> why is he taking my money? Um, hey, you know why we don't teach economics in school anymore? And by economics, I mean real economics. You know, how your money works and where your taxes go. Because if we did, there, there would only be conservatives. There'd be no socialists if we really taught the truth about taxes and what happens after our government takes the money out of your paycheck. Do we need to talk about income tax? Income tax and property tax and sales tax. And, and then, you know, our dollar is taxed six times before we ever get our hands on it. And then we go to, to spend it, it gets taxed another six times. And, and then if you die and you go to leave something to your kids, everything you had worked for gets taxed again before they ever bury you in the ground. This is what's going on in, those, in that situation. Our government has set themselves up at, in God's position. The government is in the position of the first fruits. So they get their first cut, and then God has to wait for the second cut. And so this happens, and so what happens as Christians is we're doubly less likely to give to God what's rightfully His. And some people say, I can't believe that God wants 10%. But here's the deal. It all belongs to Him. Every dime, everything you have, your car, your house, everything, it all belongs to God. You know, I'm pretty stoked that He lets me keep 90%. That's a great deal. Think back when you were a kid. What if your dad came up to you and said, hey, here's $100. Now give me $10 back. I, that sounds like a great deal. I'll, I'll do that one all day long. Uh, but that's how it is with God. And that's why the Bible says that we should be cheerful givers. That we should just give and be glad to, to give because he's given us everything we have. I became a Christian when, at the age of 29. Now up until that, that, that day, I'm pretty sure I never gave a penny to the church, to God or anything. I don't know that for certain, but I was as lost as a ball in high weed, so I'm pretty sure that is, that's true. Then I met my wife, we got married, and pretty soon we're like, you know, I think we're supposed to tithe. And I'll be honest here, the first year, it was a little hard, because I don't like to give 10% of my money, but the truth is it wasn't my money, it's his money. So the first year was hard, the, the second year was a little easier, until now I really didn't even think about it. It's 10% right off the top, and, and then we're going to figure out the rest from there. In, in these messages, I'm really quick to throw family under the bus, my kids up there, so it's only fair that I throw myself under the bus. Uh, the church we used to go to, they would send out uh, quarterly tithe checks. There would be a big stack of envelopes, excuse me, tithing envelopes, not tithing checks. You wrote the check and you put it in the envelope, and they were pink envelopes. And what I did, I'd write our, our, our weekly check, and I would stick it in my coat pocket, my shirt pocket right here, and I would carry it around so that I'd be sure to give it and not forget about it. But this is what I would do. I would sit there and go, see somebody else's pink envelope, and go, I wonder how much he has in his pink envelope. 
I wonder if it's more than my pink envelope. I wonder if it's less than my pink envelope. I wonder if I have a greater percentage or a less a percentage in my pink envelope than, than in his pink envelope. And eventually I'm like, you sinner, knock it off. This is what you should do. You should give to God what you're supposed to give. And don't worry about what anybody else is giving because that's between them and God. That's why I give online now. I'm not saying that you should give online. I'm just saying that works for me, my own sinful heart, to give what I'm supposed to give and let God sort out the rest. When our kids were real little, we tried to really teach, drive home this, this issue with um, tithing. And I remember an uh, instance happened little Ethan. I think he was about seven years old. He's up in the balcony right now, so now I'm going to throw him under the bus. Um, it was, this happened during the same time our, our church was having a, a building campaign. And the building campaign was to build a new uh, youth, youth building for all the, the kids to come and hear about Jesus. Well, we'd encourage our kids to give 10% of their allowance money or, or they would get some money for doing stuff around the house or grandparents would give them money and so we would try to te- teach them to give back to, the, to, to Jesus. And this uh, instance that happened happened right around Christmas time. And Ethan came to me and he said, hey, uh, Dad, I want to buy a, some flowers for my teacher, Miss McEwen. And so I said, okay, buddy, grab your wallet, jump in the truck, I'll run you to the store, and, and you can buy some flowers for Miss McEwen. And we're about to jump in the truck, and I look in the backyard, and it looks like a bomb has gone off. There's toys everywhere. I mean, just like Toys R Us threw up in our backyard. It is horrible. I said, time out, clean up the backyard before anybody does anything. Well, Ethan goes running off to clip, pick up toys, and he dropped his wallet. So I grab his wallet, and I look in it, and I know about how much money he should have. He's got like $12 in his wallet. And he comes back, ready to go. I'm like, buddy, where'd all your money go? He says, oh, I gave it to the church so more more kids can hear about Jesus. I'm like, oh, (laughs) well, that's a good thing. But let me say, that was a lot of money for a seven-year-old boy. So I I remember I took him to the store, and he goes in. He had to buy just one little sad flower for Miss McEwen, and he took it to her. Well, what am I to do? Because we also teach our kids that they're supposed to buy gifts for their siblings, and so they're supposed to do that. Now, as a dad, I can just put the money he gave in, the, in his wallet back to, the, back to him, but I'm trying to teach him a lesson that, yes, it's good to give to the church, but at the same time, you have to budget. You can't just give it all away. Little Ethan was like that old widow woman in the Gospels that gave her last penny to God. That, that's him. <laughs> so with his re- remaining like $8 he had in his wallet that year, he had to go to the dollar store to buy his, his siblings' Christmas presents. You know, I think about that, maybe Ethan was teaching me a lesson. By extension, we should teach all of us this lesson, that we should just give after all that God has done for us. But do you know there's a lot of Christians that, that don't give? There's a study that's done that said only 5% of churchgoers tithe. That means 95% of churchgoers don't. Uh, now, 77% of that 5% give more than 10%. So if I'm going to paint all the bad, I've got I to tell the good where the good happens. But that study said if every Christian tithed 10%, faith-based organizations in our country, would ha- or, yeah, in our country alone would have an extra $139 billion annually. The average weekly giving per churchgoer, $17 per week. That equates to $887 per year. Anybody feeling guilty yet? Don't raise your hand. <laughs> keep, keep that one to yourself. But then there's other churches. There's other churches that teach, you know what? If you give to God, whatever you give to God, you're going to give back tenfold. You're going to give back thirtyfold or a hundredfold. 
And the churches that, that teach that, they use, a lot of the times, use Matthew 13 as the, as the text for why this happens. It's the parable of the sower. If you don't know the parable of the sower, Jesus says a guy goes out in the field and just starts scattering seed everywhere. He says some of the seed fell on the hard soil, some f- fell on the rocky soil, some fell on the soil with weeds. But there was some, so- some, me, some seed fell on the good soil. The, the, the seed that fell on the good soil, it gave back uh, just a ton more than, than what was given. See, here's the problem with that. That text has absolutely nothing to do with money. That's not what Jesus was talking about. The different soils represent the different hearts of men and women. That's what it has to do with. So what that parable is actually saying is that we should go and tell everybody the gospel. And some people will accept and some people will reject. But it has everything to do with the hearts of men and women. But the churches that teach that, that very false, bad teaching, what changes is our motivation to give. You see, we don't give money so that we'll get back. We give so that God gets the glory. That's why we give. There's, well, there's, there's a bunch of different reasons we give, but here's, let me just give you two. One, we give so that God is glorified. Does God need your money? The answer is clearly no. God doesn't need your money, but the truth is he will use your money. He will use your money so that more people hear the good news, how we can be free from, free from the penalty of sin. And what's, been, what's better than being used by God? And the second reason that we give is so that we don't worship money. When we hold our money with an open hand, it's pretty hard to worship it. That's why we freely give, so we'll we'll never worship money. So this church does not preach the prosperity gospel. We don't believe it. We also don't believe in the poverty gospel. The poverty gospel teaches, well, the less you have, the closer you are to God. Let me say to that, there was a lot of wealthy guys in the Bible that were really close to God, that were used in amazing ways by God. There was guys like Abraham. He was rich and got used by God. There was guys like Job. How about King David? David had a lot. Uh, Joseph of Arimathea, Nicodemus, just to name a few. So there's a lot of guys in the Bible that were rich and loved God, and there's guys in the Bible that were rich and hated God. There's guys in the Bible that were poor and loved God, and there's guys in the Bible that were poor and hated God. But God himself, Jesus Christ, God come in the flesh, he was both rich and poor. Paul said about him, he said, for our sake, though rich, he became poor. Because think of it like this, Jesus was in heaven. I mean, big giant house with streets paved in gold. That was a nice neighborhood. And that's where he left to come here. To break into humanity through the womb of of a virgin. That's how he came to us. And as beautiful as this earth is, let me say, it is a septic tank compared to what heaven's going to look like. Jesus was rich and poor. And the Apostle Paul, he says, you know what? I know what it's like to have a lot, and I know what it's like to have nothing. So I want us to think biblically when it comes to this issue of money. There are three ways to really look at our wealth. Here's the first way. We can look at our wealth and say, what's mine is mine. We can hold our money in a clenched fist and say, what's mine is mine. Don't ask for it. Don't expect me to give. It's mine. I work hard for it. And you're not going to see a nickel of it. That's one way we can look at it. The second way we can look at at money is what's yours is mine. You have it. I want it. So I'm going to go ahead and steal it. That's another way. That's stealing. That's breaking the eighth commandment. The third way, it's a biblical way. Look at our money and say, 
What's mine is his. What's mine is his, and I will share it. That's the concept of stewardship. It's really a big principle in the, in the Bible. And stewardship is a very countercultural way of looking at, at wealth that's revealed by the God of the Bible. And it teaches that everything belongs to the Lord. Everything we have, it comes from the Lord, and eventually it's all going to return to the Lord. And everything he's given to you, he's given to you so that we would be a good steward of what he's given to us. Imagine if you had a family member that was very wealthy, and they died, and they left you to be the executor of the will. And then in that, uh, the, the, the agreements of the will, it says, you know what, you get to keep some portion for yourself, but you need to distribute the assets of the, of the agreement the way that it's written down. So that's what a steward is like. Everything belongs to God. Part of it comes to me, and what comes to me I can use to, to bless my family and to live life. But then part of it needs to be go back to the Lord's work. So this is what a steward realizes. It realizes, you know, it's not mine, but it's been entrusted to my oversight, and I need to follow the agreements. I need to follow the terms that were laid down in the distribution of the assets. That's biblical thinking. When we think of our money like that, that everything I have, it all belongs to God. And he's entrusted me with this. And we are to be stewards of the way that he's instructed me to distribute the funds that we find in our Bibles. So hopefully somewhere in this message and hopefully somewhere in, in this series we've been going through, you go, yeah, I've broken the Ten Commandments. We've been in the Ten Commandments for two months now. We have a few more weeks to go. And one of the things I've been driving home over and over again, that the Ten Commandments are very positive. The Ten Commandments aren't negative. This is a very positive thing for us to learn. But there's another big idea I want to get across. And that is that the Ten Commandments are a mirror. God gave us the Ten Commandments so that we can see ourselves as we truly are. And the truth is that we're not good. We're, we are sinners at heart. The truth is, every single one of us, we've broken all ten commandments. There we're guilty of all ten. That's what we should really see when we look at God's law. Yep, I broke, broke that one on that day. This one I broke I don't know how many times. That should, see, the ten commandments shows us for our true self, warts and all. And the truth is that we have a debt due to our sin. Each month when my credit card statement comes in, I look at it and go, huh. I can't believe I spent that much. I really should stop spending this much money. Well, what if we got a statement at the end of, our, of, our, of the month and showed us how much sin debt we have? I think that would probably break us. You know, that would probably look something like the U.S. National Debt Clock. If you've never seen that website, don't go there. It's only going <laughs> to make you depressed. But there's one little, block, one little clock on that, on that debt clock. If you decide to go there, it says how much every individual U.S. citizen owns owes, excuse me, it's scary. I think there's like, it's like that with our sin, that it's just a number and it's just spinning out of control. Our sin is the greatest debt that we have and it's accruing every day and it's constantly accruing and we're not we're going to receive what comes to us because of that debt until the day we die. Do you know if there's a day coming where that debt is due? Let me tell you where it is. It ha happens, we read about it in Hebrews chapter 9, verse 27. It says, and, as, and just as it is appointed for man to die once, after that comes judgment. So here's how it works. All of our sin is a debt that we owe to God. 
And at the moment we die, your account's getting settled one way or another. And so many people think that they're going to settle it themselves. The vast majority of the world, that's what the vast majority think. Most world religions teach that we can undo this just by doing good. It's almost like they teach, you know, God's got this giant set of balance scales. And he's going to take all the bad you've ever done, he's going to put it on this side of the scale. And then he's going to take all the good, he's going to put it on this side of the scale. And if the good outweighs the bad, it's like, whew, you're good to go. But uh uh-oh, what if the bad outweighs the good? Well, the bad outweighs the good, well, then you've got some real problems. Let me give you one scripture that blows that way of thinking completely out of the water. Read in Isaiah chapter 64, verse 6. It says, We have become like one who is unclean, and all of our righteous deeds are like polluted garments. Now, I don't have time to go through and do a word study what all those words in Hebrew mean, but let me tell you, it's way worse than you could possibly imagine. But let me, let me, let me just read that in the most simple terms. All of our righteous deeds are like polluted garments. I'll say filthy rags. So on one side of the scale, if that's what you hold to, is every time we've stolen, every time we've lied, every time we've used God's name as a cuss word, every time I've had an immoral thought, every time I've worshipped anyone or anything other than God, that's one side of the scale. And then I'm going to try to balance that out with a big, giant pile of steamy, nasty rags. If that's the way you're going to approach the end of life, good luck to you. But let me tell you, it's not going to end well for you. Here's how the Bible regards this, how how the Bible explains this. Yes, you have a spiritual debt, but there's another option other than trying to pay it for yourself. Did you know that's why Jesus came? He came to pay the debt, the debt that I owe, the debt that you owe. This is what uh, Paul says in Colossians chapter 2, verse 13. Having forgiven us all of our trespasses. By canceling the record of our debt that stood against us in its legal demands. And he set it aside. Nailed it to the cross. That credit card statement that that comes in every month, I pay it off every single month. I don't like to carry a penny over. But we have a spiritual debt with the Father that we can't pay. I don't have, there's not enough in my spiritual bank account. That giant pile of nasty rags is not going to do it. That's why Jesus came, to pay for your sins, to pay for my sins, and he did it with his own life. And he endured the very wrath of God the Father so that we don't have to. When Jesus hung on the cross, there's seven different things that's recorded in the Gospels he said for us. I want to share with you the last thing, the very last words that come out of Jesus' mouth. Found in John chapter 19, verse 30. It says, and when Jesus received the sour wine, he said, it is is finished and he bowed his head and he gave his spirit first off it says he gave his spirit not that anybody took it that jesus willingly gave up his own life but the last word to come out of jesus's mouth we translate it as three words in the english it is finished it's only one word in the greek it's the greek word tetelestai Tetelestai is often uh, translated as complete. There's a couple different ways that this word could be used. For example, if a painter is painting his masterpiece and he's, he's painting the brush strokes on the canvas and when the last brush stroke has been laid, not one thing could be added. He maybe leans in for one more but then steps back and says, Tetelestai. 
which means it's complete. You can't add anything to it. But there's another way that this word is used in that culture. That if somebody owed a debt, that, and then that debt is paid off, the lender would take the note that recorded the debt, and he would stamp it, and he would, to say that it's been paid off, he would say, to die, paid in full. What was Jesus' last words on the cross? He said, to die. We can't add anything to it. The Jesus paid it all. We sang in that song, all to him I owe. My sins are washed. My sins were, were crimson. He washed it white as snow. What's left for us to do? To appropriate it. That's all we can do. We can't add anything to it. All we can do is accept that he's paid off our, 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 our debt. How do we do that? Romans ten thirteen says, Whoever calls in the name of the Lord, they will be saved. This is what I need you to recognize. You and I, we, we are sinners. That's exactly what the Bible says. The Bible says, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And the wage that we earn for being sinners is eternal separation from God. But that's why Jesus came, to pay for our sin. And that, that, that promise I just read to you says, whoever calls on the name of the Lord, they will be saved. If you've never called on Jesus Christ to save you, I would encourage you to do that now. Maybe as you sit on your couch at home or in this church with us now, to just cry out to him. To say, dear Lord, I'm a sinner. Save me from my sins. I give you my life. And I pray this name of Jesus Christ. Amen.